We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded, maybe you should drive. And suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats all swooping and screeching and diving around the car, which was going about 100 miles an hour with the top down to Las Vegas. And a voice was screaming, holy Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? Then it was quiet again. My attorney had taken his shirt off and was pouring beer in his chest to facilitate the tanning process. What the hell are you yelling about? He muttered, staring up at the sun with his eyes closed and covered with wraparound Spanish sunglasses. Never mind, I said. It's your turn to drive. I hit the brakes and aimed the great red shark toward the shoulder of the highway. No point mentioning those bats, I thought. The poor bastard will see them soon enough. Welcome to Literary Guys and our special episode recorded live here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. If you notice any slurring or stuttering, that is because we are mid-bachelor party recording this. Only you, of the people who I know, would be the one who would record during their bachelor party. But I will say you picked a fantastic location. We are in the midst of it. Day two. Mm Mm-hmm. Really just having a damn good time. We pulled up in a limo. We did. Which apparently you need to do when you visit Atomic Liquors at, what is it, like 2.45 or something right now? It is the middle of the afternoon. Not that you would know that from some of the criminal element that is loitering outside the bar right now. We're not in the fanciest part of Las Vegas. This is off, off, off strip. Yes, but got some great Vegas history here. Atomic Liquors is the oldest freestanding bar in Las Vegas. I think 1952 is what the plaque on the wall Mm -hmm. over your shoulder says. It is so named Atomic Liquors. I think it was originally Franny's Cafe, but changed its name to Atomic Liquors after patrons would climb up on the roof to watch the bombing tests for the nuclear bomb out in the uh, Nevada desert there. So got a lot of great history here. This is one of the few bars you can go to in Las Vegas where the Rat Pack actually attended. It was also a favorite of Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barbara Streisand wrote about it in her memoirs as her favorite bar. Really? Quite surprising. Uh, This upscale dive, I would call this place. Mm Mm-hmm. And the famous uh, Hunter S. Thompson, whose quote from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas opened up this episode, also came here from time to time. So a lot of great history, both literary and otherwise, and just a quintessential Vegas location to talk a little bit about the themes of this city, mm-hmm. both in terms of masculinity, in terms of literature, and, and then probably also just a chance for us to talk about our appreciation. Because, Gordon, while you and I are both very different men, we both have a profound and deep love for this great city. Well, I used to have a profound and deep love until Jubilee was canceled. (laughs) So, for those of you who don't know, Jubilee was a stage show at Bally's, Mm -hmm. and it was notable for two things. The headdresses that the topless performers would wear, and a Titanic sinking sequence that really the former delivered big time. The latter I could have lived without seeing. I did not need to see that boat sinking. You know, James Cameron gets a lot of credit and won many Oscars for Titanic. And some people feel like that's the quintessential retelling of the tragedy. But what I appreciated so much about Jubilee is its almost exclusive focus on the homoeroticism that was going on in the engine room of the Titanic as it was sinking. It was a great creative choice. (laughs) It's not one that I think a lot of folks make. But you do raise a good point, which is there's actually very little in Vegas, which I would describe as homoerotic. Um, Mm -hmm. It is arguably the most heteronormative place you can possibly imagine, which 
It kind of makes me wonder why I love it so much, but I do. There's so much that is delightful, but really the culture of the place is extremely heteronormative, and even the things that you would think of as being more homosexual in nature, like some of the adult performances Mm -hmm. that are of men, that they're oddly targeted exclusively at a heterosexual female audience and feel very exclusatory to the homosexual audience. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because Vegas, I think one of the many, many reasons you and I have loved us, and we're not exaggerating here. I mean, between the two of us, we've been here well over 50, 60 times. Mm -hmm. We're huge fans of the city and, and all that it has to offer. I think the thing we like so much about Vegas is is the sense of freedom here. Mm-hmm. But then it is interesting to see that there are some freedoms still uncelebrated, at least on the Strip. And I, it was not something I noticed, you know, my first 20 times here. But after you and I started coming more regularly, you really helped me to see that, yeah, it's, it's hitting a real broad segment of society at the expense of maybe some of the other less represented voices in America. Yeah. There used to be a gay bar, I believe, at Planet Hollywood. I oh, was never okay. there. But even that didn't succeed. And yeah. and I think that really does say something. But on the flip side, there's so much in Vegas to love that if you can look past... Yeah, you're a wallet in Vegas. And, and I wish I could say it was different. You can allow yourself to be a slightly better treated wallet by maybe dressing up a little bit when you go to the clubs or, you know, tipping generously the staff. But by and large, it could be a dehumanizing experience, I think, if you don't have enough confidence in yourself going into it. I think that what resonates with me is what I'm going to broadly describe as the spectacle. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that is just purely a feast for the eyes, but it also can be like the wonderful food scene that exists in Vegas. It can be sound in the form of musical performance or that wonderful sound of uh, slot machines going off at one o'clock in the morning. You know, just you don't get that anywhere else. And yes, of course, we know the neon lights and every, you know, the look of the city. But I think the spectacle goes far beyond that. And theater has always been a big part of the town as well. So, you know, again, there's the parts I don't like about Vegas and it's upsetting. Like the, the older I get, the more I notice the heteronormativity aspect mm-hmm. of the town and find that off putting. You know, uh, we're actually in the middle of a limousine tour of some of the favorite off-strip locations of both you and I, some of which have some pretty exciting literary history. We were at a place called Golden Tiki earlier, which is in Las Vegas's Chinatown, that for its entire history had a knife that Hunter S. Thompson had stuck in the wall mm-hmm. through, I think, a photo of Richard Nixon and has since been taken down, which was quite disappointing. I, I didn't feel if the bartenders knew why it had been taken down. I don't know if it was too political because Nixon was being skewered or if just having an easily accessible knife during a heightened uh, emotional time like COVID might be a bad idea in a bar. But that was sad to see it taken down. But tell the folks a little bit about Golden Tiki because it is fantastic. So Golden Tiki is the newer, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of the somewhat close to the strip Tiki bars. I think what Zach is not really divulging is how deep the two of us have gone into the Vegas tiki scene. Oh, yeah. And the fact that this is part of the bachelor party is indeed an indication of the fact that it is, at this point, an integral part of the Vegas experience. When you walk into Golden Tiki, you are transported to a different place. And it is pretty much this lagoon if you mm-hmm. want to call it that, that mixes so many different bits of fake Polynesian 
imagery along with elements that have nothing to do with Polynesia into, I don't know, it's kind of like this wonderland of sights and sounds. You get insulted by an electronic voice when you're in the bathroom. They've built an animatronic bird that mimics one of my favorite places on Earth, which is the Enchanted Tiki Room at Disney. There are multiple clamshells you can sit in. There's a tiki-themed DJ bar. Uh, There is one of the things that, again, connects it with the Enchanted Tiki Room is Dole Whip. Yeah. uh, Which, I mean, I think we should do a whole episode on the magic that is Dole Whip. And they serve a beverage which is mostly rum with some Dole Whip in it. I mean, they call it Dole Whip for some reason, but it's It has led led to my ruin on more than a number of occasions. I was there. I know this happened. Uh Uh-huh. And um, as we learned on this trip, the food is fantastic. The food, as it turns out, the food was fantastic there. The um, captain's balls, I cannot recommend them highly enough. I'm glad we got a good base kind of set down there. Speaking of food, uh, we did have oh a member yeah, yeah. of our <laughs> crew leave us recently. Eric Bennett, who's the sound engineer for this fine podcasting program. Yeah, so if this is poorly mixed right now, then it's kind of the fault of the story that Zach's about to tell. We will, we'll, we'll check on him in a little bit, but he went for pizza quite some time ago. There is a kitchen here at the Atomic Liquors. It does not open until 3, so uh, we were all getting a little hangry. But, uh, but back to the Tiki Tour. As wait, 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 where did Bennett. it go? It was the uh, test kitchen? You went to the test kitchen across the street, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Did I just see a Facebook post? Let me check. He is having a grand old time at the test kitchen. He, is, he has it posted on Facebook. It is him surrounded by a rogues gallery of individuals, all toasting with shots. I believe those are our pizzas cooling on the counter, so someone better go get him. Yeah, I think Eric should focus on the sound. And not on pizza. We will send the other Eric in our crew over to go uh, fetch him right now. But going back to the, the TV Eric with room, a K. Eric with a K, yes. One of the other Bachelor Party participants, a fellow writer, along with myself, and also an educator in critical race theory, our good friend Ronick, brought up some interesting questions about Polynesian appropriation in Tiki culture. Mm-hmm. Very true. And I think you and I love Tiki, but I also think Tiki's kind of taken some hard hits with how it has kind of maybe warped a lot of Polynesian myths and culture and lore for the benefit of a mass-consuming audience. Any hot takes there? Has that diminished your love of Tiki at all? I think it has a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that I really like about Tiki, and I think we've talked about Tiki on the show before, mm-hmm. and of course at length on our Talking Tiki sister podcast, is Tiki is about escapism. It's not actually about a reality. Right. The challenge here is that even from its very beginning, Tiki was about trying to capture an idea, a feeling, as opposed to anything that was realistic portrayal of a culture. Mm -hmm. And I know that that wouldn't be acceptable in today's environment. And what's happened is that Tiki, over the last 50-plus years, has become something which has practically no connection whatsoever with any actual culture. Right. It became the Disney-fied version of it, and then everything's almost based off the Disney version now. And then the Easter Island imagery got mixed in along the way. It's not really a thing that that even ever existed. So, again, I've got a lot of hot takes on this. One of them is that I don't think that most people think that tiki culture is a specific culture. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think if you asked a lot of people, like, what culture is it supposed to represent, many of them probably couldn't even say what that is. So maybe that's one of its saving graces. But yeah, I think that tiki culture would do well right now to at least put a disclaimer on itself. 
sure. and say that this is not a real culture. It is something that celebrates the magical elements of many different cultures together, but is in no way representative of the culture or the people who ever existed right. in right. any country whatsoever. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I, th- I, I think that was very well said. And I think uh, the thing that is another one of Tiki's saving graces is perhaps the strength of its drinks, because I can quickly forget about that after one or two. But I think, you, I think you're right. I mean, I think the other thing that I think we both love about Tiki is it's about joy. Yeah. I really can't think of any negative element of Tiki culture. It's all about joy. It's all about escape. It doesn't really say too much bad about anything. No, it's a it's a world where men and women who would not be deemed attractive in any other culture can, can become tiki celebrities. We've been lucky enough to meet quite a few of them in our tiki journeys. At the Golden Tiki, no yeah. less. Yeah, and, which is, per our love of tiki, the, the second stop on this trip was Frankie's Tiki Room. Oh, a delight. Which is, is very close to the Vegas trip. It's just up there on Charleston, and it is honestly one of the greatest bars on earth because it is authentically tiki it is of the era late 1940s early 50s it looks like a cement prison from the outside Mm -hmm. without a single window to be found it is impenetrably dark almost like going into some kind of solar eclipse so you don't even know this I i just learned yesterday from a taxi driver that apparently that frankie's tiki room is one of a series of bars that were built all at the same time, including one called the Hard Hat, which is a construction bar, that all have exactly the same building. No way. That's what I'm hearing, so I think we got to go check that out maybe next trip. It definitely has a prefab construction vibe to the mm-hmm. whole thing. It is depressing from the outside. <laughs> if it wasn't yeah. for the Easter Island heads... On the outside, I don't think that... uh... Well, I still remember the look of uh, fear and doubt and genuine anger from the sole female member of this bachelor party crew, our mutual good friend Stacy, as we were pulling up to this place, like, where have you taken us? But of course, once you get in there, it is, again, very authentic. Another place where the Rat Pack had been before, so you're still drinking on the stools of greatness. And the, the tiki drinks there are just bar none some of the best you can get in the world, I think. They absolutely are. If we can put in a plug here, I I mean, I don't know if we have a sponsor for this episode, but we should have gotten a sponsor from Frankie's because they have this amazing book that is all of their recipes called Liquid Vacations. Yeah, it's sort of the Bible of tiki drinks. And I learned just a few minutes ago that one of my favorites from that book, which is called The Murky Lagoon, wasn't even on the menu. And you just, just walk up to the bar and be like, I need a Murky Lagoon. No one even looks at you weird. These are my people. Yeah. They put together some of the most complex cocktails in the entire cocktail catalog, uh, and they do it without batting an eye or breaking a sweat. It, it is an impressive operation to be a part of. And again, a good way to kind of get a sense of some old school Vegas We are now, of course, at Atomic Liquors, as we told you before, a a favorite of another Bachelor Party member, Mr. Derek, who we went Mm -hmm. to high school with. Great guy. He loves the uh, padding that you can kind of nestle your kneecaps into along the bar here. I am drinking a Hunter S. Smash, a little Old Crow Aperol concoction named after the late great writer. Uh, You are drinking... It's called an Atomic Mule. And Crystal from the Stardust, she apparently... I don't know if she was working here or, like, right down the street at uh, the Four Queens, but uh, this is, like, this is like eons ago. But she said that the Atomic Mule was the way to go. So, um, I mean, I mean, she's going to listen to this podcast, so I got to make sure that, you know, drinking what she told me to go drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so much about Vegas does kind of revolve around drinking, and it's interesting that a lot of the literature that's out there about it, a lot of the great tragedies that have been told about Las Vegas are surrounding alcohol, including my second favorite book of all time. I know you're very familiar with it. Also a great movie starring Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue, Leaving Las Vegas. And I thought as we're kind of wrapping up the episode, kind of keep some loose literary themes going here. Very loose. <laughs> I could share with you guys one of my favorites, a strong word, but uh, I think one of the better quotes about alcoholism and just the dire nature and that kind of super ego beyond the pleasure principle Freud Mm -hmm. drive that humanity has to destroy itself that I think this incredibly wasteful town in the desert exemplifies very well. So this quote from John O'Brien's Leaving Las Vegas. The perpetual cloud of alcohol wears momentarily thin, or perhaps it is just a survival instinct beating through. Either way, before leaving for the nearby bar, he is struck with the realization that he hasn't eaten for quite some time, hasn't substantially eaten for even longer. Though he is not hungry, and though the very thought of solid food brings a clear and present rush of nausea to his gut, he knows he must make time for a go of it, must try to eat something, for if no better reason than to extend his drinking base, to sustain the heart that pumps the blood that carries the alcohol to his brain, he seeks nutrition. Well, there's plenty of good food here in Vegas, I'll say that much. Speaking of, we are still waiting for Eric Bennett to bring those pizzas back. Where are those? And where is he? Is we pro- he can we get any more updates from Facebook? <laughs> we probably need to uh, to get a base going in our system here with all the booze that we're drinking. I've also been texted by the limo driver that the air conditioning is currently broken, so that's going to be a fun return trip to the hotel. Well, let's just hope we don't take 15 back when we do the side streets. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's so much darkness in the city. It's always been known for having a seedy underbelly and for preying on the weakness of humanity. And as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, particularly the humanity of men's primal urges, which is exactly why we're going next to the pepper mill. Oh, yeah. Famous filming location from uh, Casino. It is a garish, garish light display. In the, what is it, the Fire lounge, fire pit lounge, in the fi- fire pit, fireside lounge, fireside lounge. There we go. The fireside lounge, which is just a very tiny flame floating in a bowl on top of a bubbling pool of water. Mm-hmm. Which I have been told you can get electrified if you put your finger in. Maybe, perhaps we'll try it out later. Um, not me. But I think the extremes of Las Vegas that we're talking about here, mm-hmm. those incredible highs and those incredible lows, I think have made for some great American literature. Hunter S. Thompson and John O'Brien, among many others. It's one of those cities that I think if you want to understand humanity, both its awfulness and some of its greatness and what we can accomplish. I mean, there is a extravagant fountain show every 15 minutes in the middle of one of the driest deserts, in the middle of one of the greatest droughts in our nation's history. So mm-hmm. k- kudos to human avarice and ambition because we've created something a very singular unto itself here. And I think that's what great literature can do as well. And I think probably the reason we love books so much and part of the reason we love Vegas so much is because we really love that peek into the soul of humanity as a whole. Well, I'm excited that next month we're going to be peeking into the soul of man and particularly the dark side of success and of the upper class with something new that we're doing on Literary Guys, which is to focus on the work of an author as opposed to a specific book. And that author is Brett Easton Ellis. 
one of my favorite writers and also one of people who upsets me the most, yeah. which I think is the sign of someone who is putting forth interesting ideas yeah. and isn't afraid of letting us know what he actually thinks. And I think that that is really provoking and it is something which he has been doing now for many decades I can't think of too many writers who have right. been able to put their finger on the pulse of a time and then to keep doing it over and over and over again, decade after decade. We're going to try out sort of a new form here where we talk about elements of Brad Easton Ellis's work, sort of the metaverse that he has created, and really just kind of immerse ourselves in it and ask some of these tough questions like, is he too toxic? Mm -hmm. um, are the books that he writes, you know, kind of their own form of violent pornography? And what is he really telling us about ourselves? It's going to be an interesting discussion. If you want to kind of follow along with us, we'll probably spend the first week talking just about the author in general, the tone of his work, and like you said, that kind of pop culture slash pornographic sensibility that he infuses into everything. Mm -hmm. And then I think we're certainly going to try to touch on every one of his books, probably put a large focus maybe on week two on his first book, Less Than Zero. A classic. Probably our third week, I would guess, we probably want to dedicate an episode to American Psycho, his most recognized work. And also, I'm I'm sure we'll talk about the film, which is really what brought me to Brad Easton Ellis. Yeah, and you and I have a mildly unhealthy Easter tradition where we try to watch it every Easter. I don't know how that got started, but I hope it never stops. Oh, oh I know exactly how it got started, <laughs> but... <laughs> But then, and then we'll probably, you know, end up talking about Glamorama, Imperial Bedrooms, uh, Lunar Park, just the whole oeuvre mm -hmm. of his work. So if pick your favorite Brett Easton Ellis, pick one you've always wanted to read. Uh, hopefully we'll touch on it at some point over that next month. Yep. Sounds great. Well, with that, I think we need to go check on Eric, who has clearly still not come back from pizza. <laughs> so with that, this has been Literary Guys signing off from Las Vegas. But hopefully not for the last time, because we're putting it out there to the universe. We are recording in September. We're making it back from this bachelor party. <laughs>